0: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Inflation has hit 9%, a 40-year high. And is the government doing anything about the cost of living? Not really, but Labour predict a U-turn coming on a windfall tax. Every single day he delays his inevitable U-turn is going to do it. And while the government drags its feet on helping people with their rising bills, they seem to want to die on the hill of ending working from home. Why? Dominic Cummings apparently has the answer. And of course Brexit isn't done, it's come roaring back. Boris Johnson was booed this week on his trip to Northern Ireland. Protesters there were holding placards saying, protect the protocol. And you wonder, can Liz Truss save the day with her diplomatic skills? I think we know the answer. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff and Peter Walker, The Guardian's political correspondent. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Just to start, i will explain my absence last week. Uh, rather unfashionably late, I had COVID-19. God. And I was uh, bedridden for two or three days.
2: That's horrible. I,
1: th- I thought COVID had gone. Isn't there sort of more of it or as much of it around?
3: <laughs> it's just that no one cares anymore. It's like not fashionable to have it anymore, so you don't, don't say if you have.
1: So you, have you had it yourself, Gabby? No,
3: I have never God. had COVID. I'm, I'm like touching, looking for something wood in this plastic newsroom to touch because obviously if I say that I'll get it tomorrow. But
1: no. You're going to be like that guy in Day of the Triffids, the science fiction novel where <laughs> he, he wakes up in this sort of utterly changed world. He's the, He's the only person who isn't blind, I think, in that. But anyway, he's, av- just, he's avoided the fate just, before. Just you are just jealous
3: of my wondrous antibodies and the fact that obviously I'm going to have to leave my body to medical science to explain how I've managed to avoid getting it. She says literally... Do you, feel confident
1: that, <laughs> that you feel confident that you'll see out the year without having got it?
3: No, I'll get it literally. I'll be the last person uh, in the world to get it.
2: Peter, you had covid last I've had COVID twice. I mean, the first is assumed because it was classic COVID, version 1.0 back in March 2020, when you couldn't get a test unless you were kind of very seriously ill. Um, and I realised I got it. I'd had coffees with basically two Liberal Democrat front benches. And oh, about half an it. hour later, came down with this raging fever. And I thought, oh, my goodness, i have wiped out half the Dem front bench. But they were luckily both fine. You think you caught COVID from the Lib Dems? No, I think I almost gave it to them. I didn't I caught it <laughs> before then. That was that was my fear that I was gonna wipe them Because that was when it was, you know, people didn't know anything about it. And and, you know, I'm quite lucky I wasn't seriously ill, even the pre vaccine uh, era. But it's it's quite a scary thing. I
1: don't know whether I felt scared. It was just sort of three or four days of feeling pretty terrible. I'm I'm probably still not hundred percent, and I just sat in bed, avoided Wagatha Christie wise. This amazing technical story breaking out in front of us all, and I read rock books for a long period. So if you want to know anything about the, the fine details of the history of the clash... Oh,
3: excellent. Another oh, time. I'm your
1: person. But that'll have to wait. Let's talk about the state of politics and the wider world. This week, we're going to look at the cost of living crisis and whether the government is finally about to take some action. Then we're going to look at the Northern Ireland Protocol and the potential standoff between the EU and UK. Let's start with news that broke on Wednesday, uh and has set everyone reeling, really, that inflation is now at 9%, a 40-year high. That takes us back to 1982, which I just about remember. Pushing up prices and hitting the cost of living crisis even harder. For the past few months, the Conservatives have been sounding somewhat out of touch, offering a series of less-than-useful tips to people who are suffering. Let's hear them now.
3: We need to have a plan to grow the economy and make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, uh, whether that is by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job.
1: Generally speaking, you know, what people find is that by going for some of the sort of value brands rather than uh, uh, you know, own branded uh, products, they can actually sort of contain and, and manage their household budget.
3: You know, why aren't we encouraging people to make better use of their housing asset for the whole of their family? We can incentivise granny annexes.
1: In order there were Rachel McLean MP, George Eustace and Jackie Doyle Price, who has coined the immortal phrase, incentivise granny annexes. I never would have thought that one was going to enter the zeitgeist. It feels like we're now going to get sort of three of these a week. They're becoming depressingly regular, aren't they?
3: It's almost like it's a competition now as to who can have, you know, who can say, why not ask for an advance on your inheritance from your father? Um, (laughs) Sell
1: your horse.
3: To be fair, to be fair, a couple of those. I mean, I think Rachel McLean and Jackie Doyle Price were both talking about something other than the cost of living at the time. Jackie Doyle Price was talking about, you know, social care and how to fund social care. Obviously, that's not a great solution to how to fund social care either, but it gets wrapped into the whole cost of living debate because the problem is until the government has something sensible and useful to say on the cost of living debate every MP it gets put up is going to get asked this question and none of them are going to have anything practical to say which is how they all end up waffling about you know why don't you just get a job better
2: job and become a banker
1: the point being that obviously in the absence of any solid policy here they are just going to sound serially ludicrous over and over again
2: I mean, I think that's why you have increasingly junior ministers who I've never necessarily heard of before being sent out in the broadcast <laughs> rounds, because anyone seen you is going, I'm not doing this, I've got nothing to say. I, I had not I had not seen the name Jackie Doyle Price up to now. That reminds
1: me of when Andrea Leadsom suddenly crash-landed in the zeitgeist immediately after the Brexit referendum.
2: Well, I think it's just quite tricky, because it is this idea that you're always going to be presented, as Boris Johnson did when he did Good Morning Britain, this heartbreaking case of like with him of this older woman who had to travel on a bus to keep warm and there's not really an answer to it because you can say well we've done stuff but that is clearly not enough and they are clearly at some point going to have to do something bold and the longer it goes on the longer they wait the longer there are seemingly internal ructions over what to do then the more political damage is caused i mean the minister's questions on a wednesday uh, Labour could have a kind of free hit at this all the time. So it, it really does feel like they have to do something fairly soon.
1: Right. Talking of which, you mentioned the Labour Party. The Labour Party has been calling, as we all know, for a windfall tax on energy companies, the proceeds from which would be used to cut people's bills. There are past examples of this kind of policy being introduced in the UK in the dim and distant past when inflation was running at similar levels. Geoffrey Howe apparently had a windfall tax on um, North Sea oil companies. Um in Spain and Italy, they've introduced a win- windfall taxes on big energy firms um, in the last few months. The House of Commons voted on a Labour motion in favour of a windfall tax on the energy companies this week, and it was defeated. Let's hear a bit of Ed Miliband, who a lot of people think was in roaring form this week. The truth is, they have run out of excuses. And amidst the, amidst the chaos and confusion about what their position is, I think a massive U-turn is lumbering slowly over the hill. But I say this to the Chancellor, swallow your pride and get on with it, because every day he delays is another day when the British people are denied the help they need. Millions of families having sleepless nights because the Chancellor won't act. What is he waiting for? He should come to the House, as proposed by my right hon. Friend, the Shadow Chancellor, with an emergency budget for a windfall tax. The point is, it's untenable, isn't it, for, the, for Rishi Sunak and his colleagues now to sit there and continue to do nothing meaningful about this. They're in a spot.
3: You feel the frustrating thing is you feel they've always been going to do something. I mean, Rishi Sunak has been hinting as much for weeks that there is going to be something, something more in autumn. Clearly, the Treasury's working on things. It looks like they're looking at, at, warm, at adding money to the Warmhams discount, which is something that Labour has been asking for. You almost feel if it wasn't for the fact that windfall tax is a Labour idea and they don't want to be seen to, to you know, to have to take ideas from Labour, that we'd be at a solution anyway. I wonder if we're not going to end up with something that looks. Sounds and feels like a windfall tax, but is, is called something different so that it doesn't look like you actually had to borrow ideas from, from Keir Starmer.
2: What, well, a tax on excess North Sea oil profits? Indeed. <laughs> That's snappy. I think Gabby's point is a really good one because they hate taking Labour ideas and they almost certainly would have done it. I mean, there's this strange kind of dance going on that the business um, uh, um, department are obviously quite against it. Quasi karting whenever he's asked about it, says, you know, I don't like this idea at all whereas Rishi Sunak is engaged in this sort of slightly coy dance about saying, well, we don't like it, but nothing's off the table. It seems to me at the heart of all this is a very weird tension
1: to do with Conservative politics, and where people like me, at least for a while, thought it would be after Brexit, and where it sort of stubbornly still remains, which is that I thought perhaps the Conservative Party had taken a thoroughly populist turn. Boris Johnson talked about, you know, fuck business when he was asked about it. Businesses' concerns about Brexit, and would see big corporations like energy firms as being vested interests and all that. But in point of fact, Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, when Keir Starmer was challenging Boris Johnson about this, he sounded as if none of that happened. It was just sort of old-school corporate conservatism. This is what Boris Johnson said. Nothing could be more transparent uh, from this exchange than their lust to raise taxes on business.
2: Uh, Mr Speaker, we we don't relish it. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. Of course
1: we don't want to do it. We believe in jobs and we believe in investment and we believe in, in growth. I mean, having to go to the Labour Party for its lust to tax business and all that, this, that's not the language of sort of post-Brexit, red-wall-friendly conservatism, is it?
2: It just seems like something from 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, Boris Johnson is this ideological mix who will kind of pick and choose what he wants. Um, and that so he's was,
1: sta- what is that right on Monday and the interventionist on Tuesday? Well,
2: it's not even in terms of what he believes. It's in terms of you know a lot of his stuff, is saying stuff to get out of the next 10 minutes or the next half an hour or the next day. And he seemed to turn up to Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions quite unprepared for what was fairly obviously going to come up. And that line, I mean, it goes down well with the Conservative benches because there's this weird balance also within the Conservative Party that Sunak is trying to position himself as a low-tax Tory and Johnson has to court that side too, But it's just a kind of wider reflection of this Conservative Party and Parliamentary Party that doesn't make a lot of sense, that it has a certain proportion of low tax, low regulation Tories and a whole proportion of red wallers who want more public spending. So it doesn't doesn't work.
3: In in some ways, I think it's absolutely um, aimed at red wall voters for reasons that if you've ever sat through um, a focus group with people who don't follow politics that closely most of the time, what they... Here, what what they don't hear is filtered through the things that they know are always true. Like the Tories are always Labour always puts your taxes up. Tories are always strong on defence. Labour's always good on the NHS. You know, kind of Tories are always for bankers and everything the air is filtered through that. And what he's trying to do, I think, is convey the impression that on the one hand you've got this Conservative government. That has has put taxes up to their highest level since I can't even remember when, you know, that is a high taxing conservative government. And, you know, and he's still trying He's somehow trying to make people think that that's not their fault or that Labour would make it worse or that, you know, Labour's still the high tax party. We're still the low tax party, even though reality is like somewhere over here. And Boris Johnson's rhetoric is somewhere, you know, like three houses down the road in a completely different place. And you sort of hope that somehow, overall, the confused impression that gets through to people <laughs> is that the Tories are low tax, really. And it, um, it doesn't. you asked about whether it makes ideological I, sense. You I just mean, feel
1: like you've given me a guided tour of Boris Johnson's head. I mean, it doesn't make, it doesn't make, make much place. sense, that, makes does it? Place. It doesn't really. make
3: much sense, but it seems to work.
1: But the other tension in the midst of all this is, even if they do U-turn, and even if, um whatever you called it before, the special charge on... North Sea oil profits, so they not the windfall That's whatever. It's not going to be enough. I mean, that's the sort of anxiety and the terror of this moment, looking ahead to the autumn, reading things like the, the fact that off, off again, the, the, um, the regulator has floated um, having four occasions through the year when the price cap is reviewed, which just means prices is going up and up and up and up. And if you talk, as I do occasionally, um, to people at the sharp end of all this, they're terrified. And the point is... We're all getting very worked up about the idea that the government might change its approach and so on, but even that's not going to be enough. There is this sense of a social emergency which is going to hit us like a hammer come September or October. Let's talk um, about working from home (laughs) and the government's strange war on it. Um, It's remarkable, it seems to me, that although they are taking, so far, little or no action on the cost of living, one battle they have chosen to fight is a war... (laughs) on people not working in the office or woking from home. Not woking, sorry, Amazing. W-O-K-E, as in being woke, uh, which the Tory MP, uh, Jake Berry, coined that phrase. Now, by way of joining up two completely unrelated issues, on Wednesday, the Daily Mail, which is a very sort of integral part of all the noise that's being generated about this, managed to blame working from home for rising inflation. The headline was, so that's why the Bank of England is helpless, and they say that at the Bank of England, and I quote, officials have to come in for only one day in five with their long-term targets set at just half of the working week. New paragraph. The revelation caused outrage last night because Governor Andrew Bailey has warned he feels helpless in the face of surging inflation and apocalyptic food prices. The idea being that because civil servants are working from home, <laughs> they're not pulling inflation back and therefore the economy's all going to rack and ruin. Um, now, this is just the latest chapter... In this great battle against working from home, which has been going on, for, it feels like at least six months, if not a year. This is Boris Johnson speaking in April to that much-watched television outlet, Talk TV. I think that we have a general issue in uh, some of our uh, some of our approach to public services, and uh, you know, and perhaps more widely, that we all got used to uh, to working from home, to, to to Zoom calls, to thinking that we could do business like that. And I, I think for many people. It is great, but I have to ask myself uh, whether actually it is as productive as all that. Why has this sort of blob of right-wing opinion, which encompasses the government... The Daily Mail, the sort of right wing voices one sees very often on social media and on the kind of T V and radio outlets that I talked about earlier. Why have they taken so sharply against working from home? As if it's it's the sort of incipient fall of civilization. What on earth is going on, Gabby?
3: It's very popular with um, retired people who didn't have who didn't have, you know, the right to work from home in their day and don't see why anyone else should. You know, it appeals very strongly to that to that demographic and I think they see it as a way of getting at you know if the image of working from home is some some poncy uh middle-class Londoner at home in their garden or panting away on their peloton when they could be in the office and they don't want to go back to their desk they think that's you know a way of whipping up resentment but the reason I chose to write about that this um this week for the paper is a that's not who works from home necessarily b it's mad to sort of stand in the way of something that could be really revolutionary change for lots of people, make it massively easier for people to participate in the work phase who don't now, for ways of sort of spreading work and prosperity out from London and the big cities. If you could work from home, you don't have to live somewhere. It's expensive. You know, I was talking this week to politicians in Stoke, which has had a huge increase in remote working and flexible jobs, because, you know, it's a way of... People not having to move away from the towns they were born in in order to get sort of tap into opportunities that are only in big cities, and the sort of practical how working from home actually works in practice has got nothing to do with this kind of mad fantasy world that the Daily Mail has conjured up. Where if only you know Bank of England officials were in the office, they could stop the Ukraine war and therefore prevent you know Russians pushing fuel prices up. I mean, it's just nuts. It's this kind of complete divorce. Of cultural rhetoric from the reality. And it's 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 cutting people's noses off to spite of their faces. But God, know, they hate it. Sometimes. I mean,
1: Jacob Rees-Mogg, we know, has been touring um, government offices and leaving absent civil servants uh, little bits of paper on their desk saying, sorry you were out when I visited. I look forward to seeing you in the office very soon. kiss Starmer accused him on Wednesday of behaving like an overgrown prefect. Oliver Dowden MP, this is back in uh, September last year, said that people needed to get off their pelotons and get back to their desks. And then Boris Johnson, this is another guided tour to Boris Johnson's head. He said, my experience of working from home is you spend an awful lot of time making another cup of coffee. Has he got an old-fashioned kettle or something? It doesn't take long to make make (laughs) a cup of coffee, in my experience. And then, you know, getting up, walking very slowly to the fridge. Why Why do you have to walk slowly to the fridge? You walk slowly everywhere. Hacking off a small piece of cheese, then walking very slowly back to your laptop and forgetting what it was you're doing. I mean, that's his problem, isn't it? Not the, it's not a problem for the rest of us. Um, now, this week, Dominic Cummings, the former ruler of the country, short-lived though that period was, said, and I quote, You can only understand the WFH farce if you understand this is an issue that the trolley, that's Boris Johnson who he calls the supermarket trolley, gets repeated direct calls from newspaper proprietors about, not just editors. And they, he says, say, it's killing us. Tell us what you want in return, but you must get commuters back. So in other words, the reason we're being told to go back to the office is because people en route to the office buy newspapers and the proprietors of those newspapers are terrified at what working from home spells for the papers that they own. Is that...
3: I think I'd, I'd, whether it's. I mean, I think I think he's right that it's something that newspapers have a direct stake in. You know, commuters used to buy papers. Although, if you look around, you know, any train carriage the now, people, they're phones. not buy, They're reading it on their phone. They're not buying a paper. It's not the 1950s. They're opening up the Telegraph and doing the crossword on the way to work and then passing it so, to their
2: fellow on the other. Exactly. You know, midway to the okay, I'm going to try
1: another s- a slight bit of sort of quasi conspiracy theory here. There is another theory that. Some of this is down to large political donations to the Conservative Party from the sort of people who are city centre landlords who own a lot of office space and are terrified by working from home.
2: If I was a commercial property company, I'd be quite spooked. And I think with this kind of stuff, it doesn't directly happen. I don't think there is a call from a CEO to the Tory party or to Boris Johnson saying, you need to do this. But political parties often, due to the UK's way of funding parties, end up reflecting what their donors want in all sorts of different ways. As Gabby was saying, I just think it's a bit baffling because this is such a complicated, nuanced thing. I mean, I think a lot of the civil service stuff is just the Conservative Party loves to bash civil servants. And this is another reason. But the people who work from home are really, really mixed bag. Because there are people who say, well, you know, if you're a plumber, you can't do it. Well, that's true. But a lot of people who work from home, there are some disadvantages, you know, because if you're living in a shared house, have to do it from your bedroom. It's not a lot of fun and you might want to go into an office. So there should definitely be an element of choice. At the end of it, if it works for companies and it works for staff who want to do it, then it seems baffling to just endlessly push against it.
1: But they're sort of going after their own voters to some extent here, aren't they? I mean, if David Brent is still out there somewhere, who doesn't strike me as a person on the left, he would be working from home at least some of the time, wouldn't he? Wernham Hogg would have had a lot of Zoom meetings and told people they could... They could stay put where they were.
3: I mean, the Office of National Statistics estimates that by the end of the year, 57% of jobs will have some remote component or another. That doesn't mean, you know, you would work from home all the time, but most people don't want to work from home all the time. It's, you know We're probably talking two days a week, maybe. So that's the majority of people would have some... You know, amount of working out of the office, and probably more than that. That would want it. That's what government's going at. I mean, Peter's right. I think there's definitely an element of corporate lobbying around, not just real estate, but you know, all those businesses that congregate in city centres. You know, the sandwich lobby, yeah, that sort of thing. But also, I think there are big questions. I think there are big, serious questions for public transport actually, and for the you know, if you run a train company whose job has been ferrying commuters in from the suburbs or the sort of outlying towns to the city centre, and they're not coming anymore, you've you've got a serious funding imbalance and you've even got is that even your purpose anymore you know
1: there's one other thing which i think is fascinating about this and i don't think we're there yet because if there is going to be a huge shift to working from home we don't yet know whether it's really going to kick in and prove enduring and so on but it looks like in some part it's going to be and i just wonder about the political effects of all this i read this week that worthing the town on the south coast just down from brighton where the Labour Party has gone from having, I think, zero councillors a matter of, what, five or six years ago to running the town. So something's happened there, seismic, really, of a political nature. And then Worthing apparently has seen a 650% increase in remote working jobs. Now, if you have people steeped in a sort of city-type culture who suddenly feel they can live wherever they want and they move to places that hitherto have been sort of rock-solid Tory, that's going to have political consequences. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's another reason why I wonder whether that's part of why Jacob Rees-Mogg's freaking yes. out because he can see in the future that this is going to change the electoral landscape.
3: But that Worthing figure comes from the study I was writing about. Worthing is top of the league table, yeah, for home working. You know, it's really changed. Lots of people moving out from London, live by the sea, have a nice life, work. But the second two towns after Worthing were Stoke and Burnley. Those were the two others where working from home... had really. But that, really is, as you reason. said a moment so ago, that said. is
1: a fascinating. Fascinating aspect, doesn't it? Because the point being that in the home working world, you don't, if you're a graduate and you're a professional high flyer, you don't necessarily have to do what people have been doing for decades which is leave Stoke-on-Trent and go to London in all likelihood. You can spend all or a sizable part of your time staying put in Stoke-on-Trent. And Stoke
3: is physically building around that. You know, when the Cabinet went there for their away day last week, one of the things they looked at was a big sort of live-work development they've got. They're flats built for young professionals and they're above a flexible working space, so the assumption is you'll work from home most of the time. And then when you're fed up and you're missing people and fed up of getting bits of cheese in the fridge, you know, you can go down to the working hub and work with other and people. And then once
2: every five years, your Labour vote is going to go to someone who might unseat to a Tory MP rather than pile up uselessly in London.
3: If, if, if Stoke is reinvigorated as a result of some of this, it's possible that the three Tory MPs in Stoke will benefit because it'll look like they've done what they said. You know, That's they true. said levelling up would, would help your town and here it is. That's very true. I think it's,
1: this is a huge political story, which is very easy to miss, which sort of sits under a lot of changes which we're starting to see in things like local election results and I think it's probably going to run and run. Anyway, let's pause for a minute and then we're going to talk about the government's contortions over Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol.
3: I'm Grace Dent and I am back for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and Self-Esteem
2: as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. Uh. (laughs) Northern women eating... (laughs) <laughs>
0: Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday and you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating live for the first time on Wednesday 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London Her special guest is entrepreneur podcaster and TV personality Jamie Lang best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea That's Comfort Eating live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace is supported by Ocado. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST.
1: Welcome back, thanks for sticking with us. We're now going to talk about Brexit, which you may remember we were told was done. But it's boiling up again, thanks to the government's moves on the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is everyone's favourite politician, Liz Truss, speaking on Tuesday.
3: We will cement those provisions which are working in the Protocol, including the common travel area, the single electricity market and north-south cooperation, whilst fixing those elements that aren't on the movement of goods, goods regulation, VAT, subsidy control and governance. The Bill will put in place the necessary measures to lessen the burden on east-west trade and to ensure the people of Northern Ireland are able to access the same benefits as the people of Great Britain.
1: It sounds like... Westminster magnetic poetry somewhat doesn't it like a load of sort of <laughs> Random somewhat words arcane together. terms thrown together but obviously what sits under it is deadly serious it really is serious with huge potential political ramifications um can we just refresh ourselves we've, we've already given people a guided tour to Boris Johnson's brain so this shouldn't be that difficult what did Liz Truss outline
2: in other words what does that word salad actually mean It's all quite vague. We were briefed in advance of a speech on what she was going to say and any detailed questions. we basically told you're going to have to wait for the bill, this proposed Northern Ireland protocol bill, which is not going to come potentially for weeks. They've only promised it by some point before the summer recess. And even basic stuff like uh, we were asking, you say this will not breach international law. Can you say how? And they go, oh, no, because that's um, uh, legal advice we've received and we never talk about that, so we don't know that. And even basic stuff about will the European court still have some role in kind of overseeing all this. I mean, the inference is they probably will. But again, they wouldn't even say that. They say, well, you know, again, you have to wait for the bill. And you would have to assume they've worked out what the bill is going to say, at least in broad terms. So I think they just want to kind of let people in gently for all sorts of political reasons, partly because it might not make a lot of sense, whether politically or legally. And I think, I suspect there might be elements in it which are not quite as robust as Tory Brexit ultras and the DUP might like.
3: It makes much more sense if you think of it as not a real bill, or not a bill that's ever <laughs> designed to to be enacted. It's it's a negotiating tactic. It's I mean, I'm trying to think of a more tasteful metaphor in the circumstances, in Northern Irish circumstances, than, than a gun to the head, but that's really what it is. It is essentially saying what the government wants at this stage, I think we're all seeing it as a Brexit ploy, and I think... To be fair, it is about restarting government instalment. At the moment you have the DUP saying we will not do it, and with the protocol as it is, the DUP was promised, remember, that there was going to be a magical Brexit deal that Northern Ireland would never notice, in which there would be seamless trade and everything would carry on as before. And then it was told, it kept hearing all these threats from, from Truss and, and David Frost, a Brexit negotiator, that we would prepare to tear up the protocol. So the DUP is pushing for what it's been told it can get, but the, the fact is the government doesn't actually really want to give it that. What it wants is to get a deal that allows 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 Stormont to get restarted, makes it look like it's got some concessions on the Brexit. I don't think the government in its heart of hearts wants to rip up the protocol, thinks that it can you know, somehow eliminate the border down the Irish Sea. It just wants it to make it look better enough to go away, to make Northern Ireland politics function and allow Boris Johnson to move on.
1: Is the basis of this that they are seeking to change key parts of the Northern Ireland protocol
2: unilaterally? Yes. Yes, that's it. And in terms of what it would mean in real terms, it's all very vague. It's to do with having kind of green routes or red routes, depending if goods are going to stay in Northern Ireland or go between Northern Ireland and Great Britain or go to the Republic of Ireland and trusted trader schemes and kind of real-time trader uh, information and all of that. I mean, it's not a scheme which, in the context of the protocol that's been signed, would actually work. It's a series of aspirations and it's stuff that they've kind of talked about. But, you know, some in government seem to believe it could genuinely be the basis for talks, but it's It's still at the very early stage.
1: It's an odd spectacle, isn't it? The government weighing into and, and appearing to almost sort of rage about an agreement they themselves were responsible for.
2: And that's the kind of slightly unhelpful response that, you know, opposition politicians can make. You know, you were warned about this. You literally had kind of people like Tony Blair and John Major saying, if you go through with a hard Brexit with no customs union, single market, etc., then you're going to get this Northern Ireland problem, and it's not really any way around it. And that's the voice that's missing, isn't it?
1: In the in the political argument about this, because the Labour Party doesn't want to talk about Brexit, right, for, no. for fear of annoying the, the Brexit voters, it, it, yes. it needs back, right? The Labour Party won't really engage on this, and therefore, I'm not whether I don't know whether pro-European is quite the right term, but a voice that will talk, for example about the idea that we might have to be in the customs union, right? A voice that might talk long term about the fact that it might be in our best interest to be part of the European economic area, aka the single market. That sort of voice is is lacking here. And so you get this sense, which I'm sure is going to go on, about the government sort of railing against its own Brexit, because there's no, there's no rational, sensible alternative to the government's policy.
2: I mean, we are where we are, so you have these two things, one of which is very much the truth, that It's a position they were warned about and they've got themselves into. But we also are in a position where we are. And the idea of going to single market or customs union membership is not politically realistic for a number of years. So something has to be done. You know, it's the old adage, if I wouldn't start from where we are now. But there has to be something which is going to work. And it's going to presumably end up in being some kind of a, a fudge. But but there's always a risk that these things don't work out. So you know, Gabby, you were saying that they have to prepare this legislation, you know, without wanting to use it. But if you're if you're calling someone's bluff, that bluff might be called. You know, and and, and you have to be aware of that. So it could still go quite badly wrong.
3: And I I do I mean as a frustrated Remainer, I th- I spend half my life um, wanting to shout, "Told you so!" Yeah. Every time government says anything about Brexit. But in this case, it might actually be helpful to take party Brexit politics out of it for a second let's just get a deal that guarantees peace in Northern Ireland please and let's just get government restarted you know we've had enough interruption of business at Stormont uh, you know in the, in the months leading up to this it's it's dangerous to create a vacuum where it feels as if Northern Irish people have got no representation and devolved governments about to collapse I just want that sorted and I think to be fair on both the EU and the British side there is, there is a lot of will to do that and I suspect we're going to end up with a deal we're going to end up with some inelegant fudge that look, that sort of gets us through to the next crisis because of course there will be a next crisis. And that's, that's
1: the last question I wanted to ask you was that even if by some miracle this is somehow resolved for the short to medium term it's sort of in this government's DNA, isn't it, that we'll then just pick another fight with the EU because there'll be another aspect of the reality of Brexit which the government finds unpalatable. So it'll be cues at Felixstowe and Harwich and Dover and all that next.
3: It's whenever, I mean, because the trouble is, but they sold a, mis- a very misleading you know, set of promises to the British people and one by one they're going to get found out and it. All the things that they said, oh, don't worry about that, that'll never happen, are going to happen. And at that point, someone is going to have to be blamed and it almost certainly won't be Boris Johnson. And
1: do you think, therefore, it's interesting, This, looking at how well the Lib Dems did in the local elections, for example, that therefore sooner or later a more pro European, pro customs union, single market type voice will be heard much more loudly in politics. Not for quite a long time. (laughs) Even even the Lib the Lib
2: Dems don't want to talk about it. At their, I can't remember if it was last conference or conference but one, they decided to set out this very general policy of yes, we would support single market customs union, maybe even rejoining the European Union, but in the long term they basically took the Brexit football and kicked it right far along grass because the Lib Dems suffered really, really badly in 2019 because of their Brexit standards. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't their fault. And they want to get through at least one general election where no one asks them about Brexit. But it's a, it's a messed up
1: way of for politics is. to carry it's on, isn't it? It's bonkers. So all of these problems are just plainly there to see. And anyone with half a brain knows exactly why those problems are happening. But no one's talking about it. And yet no one talks about it.
3: It is depressing, but you know the Lib Dems want their West Country seats back, some of which were quite quite Brexity and or quite long-standingly Eurosceptic. And I, I think in 30 years' time, we'll have sidled back in a very British way to something that looks not exactly back in the European Union, but very, very close, kind of Efterish. but we won't talk about it.
1: In 30 years' time, I'll be 82, which is a uh, yes. terrifying thought. It seems, as ever, to quote Pink Floyd, that hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. And on that note, we shall finish. Thank you so much for joining us, Gabby and Peter. Thank you. Thank you. You're laughing at Roger Waters' lyrics. No one ever laughs
2: at Pink Floyd lyrics. We're just laughing at the idea of our listeners going away with this cheery spring in their step.
3: Always leave you feeling good. That's not, there'll that's be so more.
1: Well, there'll be even more next week. I'll start quoting Morrissey then, probably. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, I want to direct you to the return of Comfort Eating. This might cheer you up. <laughs> hey. A bit of comfort eating. A podcast hosted by the Guardian's award-winning and extremely optimistic and upbeat restaurant critic Grace Dent. She's not actually. Celebrity guests will throw the cupboard doors wide open. It says here on the comfort foods that have seen them through their lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Listen to Comfort Eating with Grace Dent wherever you get your podcast. This eternally upbeat, cheery, euphoric podcast was produced by Natalie Catena. The music was by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back with a big smile next Thursday.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med.